the podcast where knowledge meets curiosity. Join Professor Margaret Vaughn as she explores groundbreaking ideas with top scholars aimed at sharpening our thinking. With her guests, Dr. Vaughn dives into a world of profound insights and intellectual adventure. Our journey to getting smarter starts here. Welcome to the first episode of the podcast, Getting Smarter, where I'm having conversations with established scholars who have strived to transform thinking in education with the goal of helping the field's collective ongoing effort to transform thinking. So today I have the fabulous Dr. Gerald G. Duffy. He's the former William Moran Distinguished Professor of Literacy and Reading at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and Professor Emeritus at Michigan State University. He was an elementary and middle school teacher, having taught for nine years in the classroom, and as a result, he's always been rooted in classrooms. Field-based researcher and thinking throughout his work focuses on teachers and classroom life, rigorous long-term study of how research ideas work in the context of real classrooms, and longitudinal field-based teacher education and professional development. He's a past president of the National Reading Conference, now the Literacy Research Association, and he's also a distinguished member of the Reading Hall of Fame. Dr. Duffy has worked with teachers and children all across the United States and overseas. He's written and edited several books on reading instruction and has published over 150 articles and research studies on effective instruction and comprehension. And I just wanted to add, he's one of my all-time favorite teachers of all time. So (laughs) thank you, thank you, thank you. We should stop right there. Well, oh gosh, it's just just a delight to talk with you. And uh, it's just always such a treat to visit with you and 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 have time to, to talk with you. So uh, I wanted to just say thank you ahead of everything to, for taking the time today. How are you doing today? No, you are welcome. It's, it's good to see you. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to get started with our fun questions, and hopefully this will just be very conversational. So, um, so tell me a little bit about why did you go into teaching? Well, I almost didn't go into teaching. Um, when I was in high school, we didn't think that I was going to be able to go to college. We didn't have enough money. So I was all set to join the Navy. <laughs> but in the summer before my senior year, my mother discovered that in New York State, the uh, colleges had no tuition. And uh, so she said, you're going to college. And so I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> So that was a program they had that te- that anyone could go to college for free in New York State if you wanted to become a teacher? Back in the day, Nelson Rockefeller was the governor of the state. He, one of the things he did was make all the teachers' colleges uh, tuition-free, which uh, otherwise I would not have been able to go to college, I'm sure. Uh Ended up going to Buffalo State, uh, and from my mother's perspective, uh, it was just to get me a college degree. It wasn't necessarily to become a teacher, but obviously, uh, it was absolutely the best thing for me. So, did you grow up in? in New York State the whole your whole childhood and did your parents were your parents educators or tell me a little bit about your background no, no my uh, my uh, 
father and mother, neither one of us them were educators, but my mother uh, had a great influence in terms of literacy on me because she was an avid reader of novels and would drag me with her to the local library to and set me up in the children's section while she uh, searched around in the adult section. And uh, so, yeah, literacy was an early thing with me because of my mother, primarily. Uh, my, my father was, uh, uh, my father had other problems, which, uh, yeah. which, well, which didn't necessarily contribute to my career one way or another. Yeah. That's amazing that you had such a, a, a positive influence in the power of libraries even back then. I know you're such an advocate for reading and the libraries, and so I love that that early connection. I think about it oftentimes because when you talk about uh, politicians investing in people, see, that's what Rockefeller was doing. He invested in people, get them to be able to go to school. Uh, and the same thing happened to me for my doctorate because Lyndon Johnson's National Defense Education Act uh, allowed me to go to Illinois for a, for a doctorate when I never would have been able to if they hadn't had that wow. fellowship program. That's amazing. So, you know, yeah, it, yeah, it's a good example of uh, if you invest in people no doubt. It often pays off. Yeah, of course, you're a shining example of that, as 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 you know. So, uh, so you went to, and then tell me how you got into teaching your your first classroom teaching experience. What was that like? It was so bizarre. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, I had been in the army, and I came out of the army on February. It was a Saturday, February tenth, I think. And uh, got home at midnight in Buffalo, and uh, eight o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, I was off to school thirty-six. Wow! In downtown Buffalo, uh, because uh, I had my wife was teaching in Buffalo, and so I'm in the army. I figured, okay, I'll apply at Buffalo, and of course, in those days, if you had a pulse, they so uh, they they hired me uh, sight unseen, and I showed up at school thirty six at eight o'clock on that Monday morning, and found out that um, I was going to teach in fourth grade, and that uh, I was the thirteenth teacher that oh, that, wow. that class had. Wow! Because the first teacher had a uh, a stroke in September. Oh. So then they were trying to find a you know permanent substitute. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, um, I it was I mean they were downtown Buffalo urban tough ki- tough multi-ethnic typical urban kind of class, but there were thirty nine of them. In one class, no teaching aid. Yeah. Yeah. No. No teaching aid. So, you know, you look back on that and you say, how the hell did I ever do that? You know, how did you do it? I, you know, there's lots of funny stories that come out of it because uh, 
you know, I mean, I did not know what I was doing. And <laughs> I mean, I had student teaching and I had, had classes and message courses and stuff, but, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And so I, I remember that the first day I, I said, so what are you guys doing in social studies? And they showed me the social studies book. <laughs> opened it up and the, they said we just finished this chapter the next chapter was the chapter on China I said okay let's let's, let's study China <laughs> and because at Buffalo State I had um, I had been educated by a bunch of people who were all teachers college Columbia graduates all strong Dewey advocates you know the top of you know Patrick, all those big old names from the 30s and 40s. And so I, you know, I knew all sorts of things about, uh, you know, child-centered education and student choice and project-based instruction. And uh, so that was my background. So I just said, well, let's see what we can do about getting a project started on China. And we were well into it, like a week or so into it. Gnomes all decorated with Chinese stuff and oriental stuff. And we had a visit one day from the supervisor from the Buffalo Central Office. And she comes to my door and greets me and stuff. And she takes one step inside and she says, what is fit? I'd say, well, we're studying China. You know, I'm all excited about the project. You know, and she said, Mr. Duffy, in Buffalo, we don't study China. And said, you know, stop doing it right now. <laughs> and of course, I didn't. I mean, she laughed, and we knew she was never going to come back. Get right, right. Here. Why did she say that, I wonder? Well, she said that because uh, of the uh, of the times. I mean, this is 1958, okay? So uh, the big thing in the news was whether we're going to have communist China as part of the United Nations. And um, uh, at that point in time, they were not allowed to be part of the United Nations because, after all, they were communists. Bad. <laughs> and so Buffalo in its internet wisdom that decided that kids should not study China. I mean, it was, you know, just one of those. Yeah. You know, you get school policy sometimes that you, uh, uh, what, what it, there was a book one time about, I couldn't be able to recall, about teachers needing to. Engage in subversive activity. Oh, yeah. Teaching other radical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you get, did you get any, did you get any pushback from the parents? No, the parents were so glad to have somebody who was going to be in that classroom. That's so great. Yeah. And plus, they were typical, you know, inner city, urban 
as I don't think I actually saw a parent during that year. I mean, I must have, I must have had parent conferences or something like that. But no, I mean, they were just, and the kids were the same, same way. The kids, I'm, I'm sure, because uh, they were, they were, you know, they were typical, hard to control city class, but they themselves were so glad to know that I was going to be there. All year. Yeah. Did you have other other teachers like you in the school, or did you feel like you were standing alone, or did you feel like you had other innovative teachers like yourself, or did you feel? I, I thought I, uh, I mean, to the extent that I even knew my colleagues in that building, because, you know, you show up the way I did in the middle of the year like that. Uh, but I got to know several good teachers, and the principal was, was very supportive in the sense that she was, she never entered my classroom. But every time I saw her, she was, you know, making sure that I was happy doing what I was doing and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I felt comfortable there. But it was the thing about me anyway with teaching. I mean, I have always, from, the, from that first day, it just was, to me, that it was never work. It was always fun, and, um, and and even in that situation where I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, it it was a, a, a great six months, and uh, I learned that actually I even though I didn't know what I was doing technically, you know, I didn't know how to teach reading. I did, <laughs> but, but I knew a lot of engaged kids in activity. I knew a lot of engaged kids in projects. Uh, so it was, it was reinforcing and and felt productive. So I love that. Yeah, I loved it. yeah, I love that. Do you? Uh, of course, I know your 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 writing is is amazing and. So do you feel like those early experiences really formed your thinking? I mean, in terms of, you know, your explicit teaching and I mean, you know, you are such a teacher advocate. And so I always walk away when I read your work thinking that that this is someone that knows what it's like in the classroom and is is for teachers and is for schools. Well, I never I mean, you know, the thing that I think distinguishes who I was is a as a professional, was a, I was always a classroom guy. I always thought of myself as a classroom teacher. Um, and, uh, and, and I just kept, you know, I kept learning as I go along. I mean, I started out with, my, with Buffalo State, uh, and approach to teaching in classrooms uh, and then eventually yeah, began to realize that I wasn't doing anything for the kids who were struggling. I mean, 
projects are wonderful, motivation's wonderful. Uh, they were all excited to have me there, but they weren't learning to read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, those kids who were struggling. Um, so I, I eventually, you know, began to develop uh, an understanding of how to integrate both this child-centered, project-based kind of stuff uh, as the overall atmosphere in the room. And then within that, you've got to learn how to be direct and helping kids who yeah. don't get it easily. So it, it was, um, you know, it, it took me several years to be able to come around to that. And, uh, and then probably the final the final evolution in my understanding about classrooms came out. I was at Michigan State, and fortunately there at the time when the Institute for Research on Teaching was funded, and we began studying classrooms and classroom life, and you begin to get a, a, an understanding there. Even though I'd been a classroom teacher for nine years and had Actually, after I got my doctorate, I went back to Fredonia, where I had been, and taught a sixth grade. So that would have been another year. And, it, and then in my first couple of years at, at Michigan State, uh, the dean had this idea about um, having professors teach in inner city schools as a way of uh, becoming a little more relevant in terms of teaching. And he put me in charge of that. So for two years, I was recruiting people to teach in this uh, inner city school in Buffalo um, and taught, and myself co-taught a fourth grade for two years. With So I was teaching all the time. I mean, I was in classrooms all the time. But still, the IRT, the work that we actually did in terms of studying teachers in classrooms and how they make decisions and what is what their life is really like. Uh, that's when I finally began to understand about the the ecological nature of classroom life, that every damn thing is interconnected with everything else. And if you're going to ask a teacher to make a change, can't just go make that change. I mean, you've got so many other things. That are, it's like dominoes, the roll of dominoes. Throw. One thing's going to cause something else, and it's just an extremely complex situation. So that was the final evolution in terms of understanding how classrooms work and how different it is than just saying, okay, we're going to make a change. And then and, and nothing is easy in classrooms. And uh, that, that understanding made it even more important from my standpoint to be an advocate for teachers because it was my feeling that 
We oftentimes take teachers for granted. We tell them we should do this and they should do that. They should do this without any real understanding of what it is that they, you know, how difficult that is for them to do. So, uh, so that was sort of the progression. Yeah. I was thinking uh, as I as I looked at and I asked you some pieces. I was looking at some of your earlier work. Um, the piece about um, the poetry that seems relatively close to when you that was in 1963. Yeah. yeah, poetry and insight into self in the the English elementary English journal um, in November 1963. That was a wonderful article to read, and um, I speaking about the going back into the classroom. I saw that at the end of the article where you talked about how uh, I think you took had taken a sabbatical, or and you were back into the classroom for a period, and this was in part some of the understanding that you got. But is that part of that integrative work where you did, where you went back into the classroom and you can you do you, that article really spoke to me in different ways and yeah, yeah. Was my first love. I mean, that was when I first started teaching. I mean, I, you know, again back to my Buffalo State background. I mean, I knew how to get kids engaged, and I knew how important it was that we get them involved in actual reading activities. That uh, and I had to always loved children's poetry myself and so I it was just, you know sort of a natural thing as part of the building a literate environment that you'd start reading not only stories to them, but you start reading poetry to them and then one thing led to another and I began to see that these kids could actually write gorgeous poetry a lot better than I could write Yeah, I began to understand, like in that article, this you know insight into self thing about uh, uh, these kids. In, once they learned some things about poetry and about what it is that you are, what poets are doing when they're writing a poem. And uh, what they're, you know, what causes the stimulation is. And so then they began picking up on all of that. And you saw some of those poems. And mm-hmm. I mean, these kids were thinking. They were seeing things that they hadn't seen before. Yeah. And, uh, and that fascinated me. And uh, I would... When I went to get my doctor, I thought I was going to be a language arts person. Oh. Because I did my dissertation in poetry writing. Uh, tried to teach kids to, uh, but it was actually a rule of, it was an experiment. I, I used, I was in Northern Illinois. They had a lab school. They had some teachers who were willing to participate in my little study, so I had a little set up teachers who taught kids the more creative aspects of 
poetry as opposed to those who were teaching just prosody, rhyme, rhythm, all that stuff. And uh, that was my dissertation. And uh, so I came out of Northern Illinois as an expert on poetry, right? <laughs> what did you find in your dissertation? What did you find from that study? Well, it, 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 yeah, what you find is the complexity of classroom teaching. You know, you find that I mean, it never comes out exactly the way you think it's going to come out because you have so many other, you have so many variables coming at it. I mean, basically, what uh, I found out in the dissertation was that there were no significant differences, which, when you look back on it, is not surprising. But then when I went back to Fredonia and uh, back in, into the lab school that I had been teaching in before, I had those people replicate the study. And I had a little more control then about what was going on because I was right there on scene. And so we did get some results out of that. But it was not... carefully enough done to actually be a publication or, you know, it just satisfied me that, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But by that time, also, I had learned how to teach reading. And so, and I began to focus more on the fact that these two or three or four or five or six kids you always have in every classroom who just don't seem to get it. And so I kind of moved away from the poetry thing and into, into uh, teaching writing and with a special emphasis on the kids who are having difficulty. How did you feel like you really learned that? I mean, I know it, it's classroom-based, um, but you said... You just said uh, about how you, you learned to teach reading. So how did you, you know, I mean, that's just the endless debate now is what's the most effective way and how do you, you know, I, I'm just so curious as to what you're in that time frame, what you were thinking was really the most effective way. Well, I, 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 what, what changed my mind or what moved yeah. me off of where I was with was that when I was at Northern, I had I took a reading diagnosis class and a clinical practice class from Dick Burnett, who was the uh, reading guy at uh, Northern in those days, and uh, and he taught me how to do an informal inventory. Well, it was like he revealed the world to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I said, oh, yeah, I mean, you can really look at kids as they're reading and figure out what they're doing and what they're not doing, and that opened up a whole new world to me. I, I didn't. Yeah. I had not had that background. You know, Buffalo State, for all the good things it did to me, it never, you know, never actually got down to learning to teach kids to read. No. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, 
So, so that, yeah, that changed me. So was it just that it wasn't like, okay, there's one way to teach reading. It was simply that if you, if you've got kids that are struggling and they're not learning, you know, naturally or whatever that, then you could, you could look at, you go study what they're doing and come up with focused uh, instruction that's going to help these kids move. So it was, uh, uh, it's the diagnostic idea that was really driving it. Uh, ultimately, what, you know, it, it came down to how do you do this within an overall structure of in which kids are engaged in, in active kind of stuff like project based and, uh, and, and how do you fit this more direct kind of instruction inside that structure, mm -hmm. uh, which is always difficult for every teacher. It's just another complexity. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got, don't, we no longer have 39 kids in a class. But, uh, okay, you have 25 kids in the class, you still, you know, you've got five of them that are just struggling, and then you've got to help them. So how are you going to do that within the framework of the other 20 and having everybody feel like they're part of a group? You know. I love that. It's complex. Yeah. I wanted to... Uh share some of the um some edits for, from some clips from your article and that um one of the poems that i thought was just so beautiful that i thought i really would love to read if that works it's by a student who's age 10 ray and the student said when i look at the sky i seem to see something then i thought it's just a little cloud trying to fool me but yet i was not sure i looked up and now i was sure it was a huge white bird coming down, 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 and then, yes, then it disappeared back up to its home in the wide-moving blue sky. And I just thought, what a beautiful poem. It, it makes you cry. Yeah, yeah, I read that a couple of times, um, and I thought, wow, that is beautiful. And and I thought, and I think even your writing in that article, there's a poetry essence to it, too. I mean, you were describing you know, how you can provide opportunities by having kids watch, watching heavy machinery at work, studying the flight of a bird, or witnessing a janitor clean the hall, or just a few of the many everyday events which the teacher could similarly utilize. And I loved that connection to the everyday that you talk about in that article. And it's interesting because I can see that thread. That's not necessarily project-based learning, but it is about what's interesting to kids, what's in the moment, what's happening to engage kids and i i loved that i mean i thought it you know and i'm a huge fan of that i love that it's that side of my professional reputation that nobody knows anything about because what everybody knows me for now is you know teacher explanation direct explicit yeah direct teaching you know uh 
No, that was where my heart was. Do you feel like there's any crossover with that? With where I mean, I know you just talked about it in in the movement, but if you think about your work with explanation and explicit teaching and this kind of work, I mean, do you see any crosses in terms of like the creativity of, of it? I mean, I, I wondered about that as I was reading it and trying to make these connections with your work. And I thought. I think so. Yeah. The lesson that I take from it is that you, uh, you got to be a little bit of everything if you're going to be a classroom teacher. And, uh, uh, and you don't side on to one particular way of doing things and stick to that come what may. And I mean, uh, it's the, the art of teaching is, uh, is grounded in the ability to be able to use and apply and adapt any anything you think is going to help that kid. Doesn't make any difference whether it fits this ideology or that ideology. Or, so uh, true. And so, so yeah, creativity is the heart of the whole thing. I mean, uh, you know, you. Yes, the focus is the kid. Is the kid learning, making progress in the way that you want him to make progress? If he's not, then your job is to figure out what the heck you're going to do, regardless of what your yeah. philosophical perspective might be. And, uh, and you know, that, and I, I always think back, I, you know, Lee Schulman was one of my mentors at Michigan State. And, and Lee was a, a great psychologist. And, uh, uh, before he started working with us in the College of Education, he uh, he was working in the medical school uh, with decision-making of physicians. Oh. And then he came over, he spent, I don't know, worked with the medical school for like five years. Then he came over to the school of that and helped us with this decision-making of teachers. And he was just, you know, I mean, it was like a revelation to him because, you know, the complexity that teachers are dealing with with 25 kids and all the different things they have to do is so much more complex than the physician making decisions one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, one patient at a time that he, yeah, he, he was very adamant about the fact that uh, some, I, could, I can't remember his exact words, but something like, you know, of all the jobs that we've asked people to do in this world, there's nothing more complex or more difficult than what we ask teachers to do. And what he meant was that the complexity of, uh, of of trying to deal with 25 kids at once, making sure that you're doing something good for all of them, you know, involves decision-making way beyond what Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I love that thinking. And uh, I know you, uh, I know, you know, we've talked about agency because you were my mentor and, and my dissertation chair. 
And I just want to pull back and say that in 1963, I feel like you talked about agency. You didn't call it. But I found a quote. It said, the real consideration is that each child, by producing something unique, was made aware of his individuality. And so, yeah, I just wanted to to just give a throwback. (laughs) But you, I loved it. You talked about it. And. You know, it's so funny. It's it's connected how uh, I, I feel at the heart that's always, you're always about the students, which I think it, I just think it's, uh, I think sometimes we we in research can get, especially in academia, you know, you get so focused, I've got to make tenure, I've got to get to that next hoop. And I love that throughout and throughout your work is always about students and it's always about teachers and it's always about schools. I mean, you can't, you just don't deviate from the heart of that. And I, I find that to be really inspiring. Yeah. yeah, it is hard for people in academia to use the classroom as their basis. I mean, you know, there are so many forces working on professors, like you said, getting tenure and bookcases and all that. And the hardest kind of research in the world to do is classification. And it's the most, it requires, it requires the most time, it requires the most uh, effort, it requires the most uh, difficulty in trying to recruit people to do it. Uh, yeah. You know, so you don't find very many people in academia who are willing to study classrooms. And, and there are good reasons for it. Yeah. They, they don't have the time. They don't have the money. It takes a lot of money to, uh, to be studying in classrooms for yeah. long periods of time. But, uh, you know. Yeah, I love that. So when we, I, I mean, of course I love, I love, I could talk to you for hours and hours because um, I just enjoy listening and, and learning from you. Um and I also wanted to say that kind of you were the inspiration for this whole podcast. And you may not, I don't think you knew this, but back at UNCG, I distinctly remember uh, conversations in your office. And, you know, you would say to the team of us, hey, you know, this is about getting smarter. You know, read this article. This is about getting smarter. You know, you'd say, hey, that's how we get smarter. And so I just also wanted to share that this really was a seed from your, your work. Cause it, it, I do feel like that is a motto. It's an ethos. I think that you always are, you know, you, you live by and you live by in this work. And I, I, I love that. So I just want to also give you that credit that above all, like, you know, you, you know, your work is so inspiring and, and it also is carrying out this other podcast, really this idea of how to get smarter in, in, in our work. Um, so when you think about like your 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 wonderful career, like what are some highlights? I mean, I know you've mentioned so many of the wonderful work in school, um, but what like what are the highlights? Like if you had to, you know, like David Letterman used to have like the top ten. I don't know if you used to watch David Letterman of like what are the things that he, you know you really enjoyed. That doesn't have to necessarily be ten, but um, what did you enjoy the most? You know, if you had to really like share, well, uh, uh, that would be a tough decision. Yes, <laughs> in, in all 
I loved it all. So, <laughs> but I, you know, I think, uh, you know, back to the, the foundation thing. I mean, I love, I love being classroom teacher, and so I love just being there with those kids. So, and being, you know, trying to figure out how to get them all engaged. You know, so that, and and out, you know, that to me that was always the great challenge. You know, how do you? It's like constant strategizing, trying to figure out how you're going to get everybody, how you're going to get everybody involved. Right? So that's one aspect. But the other, another highlight has to be the fact that I showed up at Michigan State University at uh, at just the right time to be involved in the Institute Search on Teaching, which had a tremendous influence. We've already talked about the, you know, the research revealing the ecological nature of classroom life, which had a huge impact, but also the fact that I was, I had not really prepared myself to be a researcher, you know, in the, uh, I was, a classroom teacher. I didn't think much about uh, about doing research, so I think another highlight was that I actually thought that I could do it. You know, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, uh, when I first got to Michigan State, it was there was no expectation you were going to do research. Um, we were known at that time as the university that produced the most. Certified teachers in the country. <laughs> and no wonder we taught them 300 at a time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but that changed ultimately. And, uh, and thanks people like Lee Shulman and Judy Lanier and people like that, with, uh, uh, the Michigan State became a research based teacher education institution with focus both on teaching and on teacher ed. Did you, you said you, uh, you, it almost sounded like you were surprised that you could do research. I find that so like interesting because you're the, like a top-notch researcher. Did you, did you find that you fell in love with the mode of research and like its capability? Like what, did it fascinate you? research or did you feel like it was a means to an end i don't know yeah i mean yeah, you know i mean i was surprised at your ability uh, or just that research uh, itself well i i was i i mean i i would I mean, you know, you go back to okay, the early articles on poetry, right? You know, like that stuff. I had learned early on that I had an ability to conceptualize certain kinds of ideas 
in ways that made them clear to other people. And so, so, and that's, you know, what we think of it as right. Okay. I mean, I, I could write and I, and, and I learned that early on. So I could write articles, but the idea of doing research really is a lot more rigorous and and I, I think that came just because I was there in the middle of it. And I had people who knew what they were doing and they taught me how to do it. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it's difficult to describe what an exciting time that was at Michigan State. I mean, that's when uh, uh, qualitative research just was starting uh, yet Susan Florio, who was one of the, yeah, the, the original people from Harvard who did it, she came on staff. And, uh, so you had all that going on, and you had a bunch of uh, uh, experimentalists who were talking, you know, about controlled experiments. And, uh, I mean, it was just such an exciting time. And, uh, and, we had the money and the support to be able to actually come up with some studies that, that to me at least, made a whole lot of sense. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult to imagine a time that could have been more exciting than that. That's so, that's so exciting. Do you feel like that's a collective feeling from across the group of people that you worked with at that time? Did they feel like that sense of excitement? Oh, no. It, it was, uh, I mean, people are people, okay? So uh, you know, you, there were people at Michigan State who <laughs> sort of an old guard or an old boys club that, uh, that didn't want to do research and they, the fact that it was all of a sudden becoming uh, important that we do research. But of the people that were engaged to the IRT, it was it was exciting across every one of them because there was a lot of collaboration that went on. It was uh, we would have these uh, sessions every week with which people would share uh, what they were working on under the agents of the, of the uh, IRT, and then they would have they would bring in people from around the country oh. who were doing other kinds of research on teaching, and uh, so it was constant stimulation, constant excitement about these ideas, and, uh, uh, and, and actually. It was for a literacy person. It was even super exciting on top of all that because at the same time you had the Center for the Study of Reading at Illinois, and David Pearson and Rob Terry and Dick Anderson and those folks doing all the stuff like comprehension, which was hugely, I mean, 
from a literacy standpoint, probably the most significant thing that happened during the time I was uh, So because we had the IRT going on and Center for Study Reading going on at the same time, uh, there were lots of joint meetings between the people at Illinois and the people at Michigan State trying to integrate together what, uh, what we were learning about teaching and what they were learning about comprehension. Such a tiny. It was, it was just, you know, lucky to be at that point at that time, because uh, I never would have learned as much as I learned, except for just being immersed in that up to my eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love your. I love how collaborative it sounds like it is. I mean, I. I mean, that sounds like such an exciting time that you were a part of it. Um, and then I was looking also, like I asked, uh, I, I saw the article about the alligators, right? The, tell me a little bit about My that. Is that your favorite article? Tell me why. Fighting off the alligators, what research and real classrooms has to say about reading and steps. My favorite article because... Uh, It illuminated a, a basic truth that every teacher I ever talked to resonated to. I mean, <laughs> uh, the you know the whole idea of, uh, of, the, of the fact that you know she teaching school is very definitely being up to your ass and alligators and. And it's very definitely true that you're hard to remember what your original objective might be because you're too busy keeping things together. I mean, uh, the thing with the basic finding came out of years of work at, at the IRT was that the teacher's major concern is keeping the activity flow smooth. And if, you, if you've been a classroom teacher, you know that the thing you cannot have happen is chaos. You yeah. cannot let chaos It's like poker. You can't let it. <laughs> and, and every teacher that we ever studied in the IRT, uh, uh, to one way or another, it always came back to the fact that, all right, whatever we're going, whatever we're going to do, we've got to do it within the framework that uh, uh, it's, it's too complex you can't ignore the fact that teachers have to keep the activity flow going. And you got to work within that framework. If you're not willing to work within that framework, then you, the teacher's not going to be able to respond very well. And I love that. I, I love that the imagery of the alligators. I thought that was such a smart way to, like... Well, we're, and teachers loved it. <laughs> yeah. What did they say? They loved it because yeah. that felt like truth to them. Yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, here's, here's some research that's being done that that sounds like what I deal with every day. Didn't sound fluffy. It was kind of what it exactly is. Yeah. Do you feel like that was also the seed? I mean, you started adaptive teaching and, and was, could you talk a little bit about that progression um, in terms of like, because I saw in this piece and, you know, as I follow your work throughout, the thread of adaptive teaching, it's its kind of working with that 
within that flow, but also being very thoughtful about how to integrate and how to modify in those those moments. Well, I think the adaptive, I mean, to me, the adaptive teaching idea just flows naturally out of the idea that teaching is so complex that no, that, that, you know, I think of class, you know, you think of, people talk about the world is gray, it's not black and white. And I think of classrooms that way. Classrooms are gray, they're not black and white. You can't, uh, you know, in, in, in the academic world, we do a lot of talk about, uh, you know, the right way to do it, uh, the best ideology, the best philosophy, the best theory. And I've always thought it was a waste of time because if you're a classroom teacher, you have to be prepared to do whatever it takes to get the job done. And uh, I, uh, I, uh, the adaptive, it just seems to me that being an adaptive thinker means that you're going to the best of this and the best of that and the best of this. And you're going to apply it strategically based on your assessment of where the kids are. And, uh, and you're not going to pay any attention to whether this is an approved <laughs> strategy in some way or another. I mean, uh, I, and we, you know, I, we learned a lot of that doing our teacher explanation study, which was, uh, uh, you know, which, I mean, we did two, two years, two separate experiments. Um, and in both cases, uh, well, in the second case, more than the first, but, uh, we, we did get results that's, that said that you know, being explicit pays off. But the more important thing we got out of that was the fact that when you go back and look at these teachers and what they were doing, uh, we were supposedly teaching them how to explain in certain ways. And then the best teachers uh, adapted to what we said. They didn't do what we said. They adapted to said, depending upon what the kids needed at the time. And so they were still within the realm of being explicit, but they did, there were no two, there was no one way of doing it. And, and that was, you know, that was data that uh, we ended up thinking was more important than the results of the explanation study itself is it that is that yes explicit teaching worked it helped kids who were struggling but the important thing is that these teachers did not follow directions in some sort of explicit way they they understood the concept of being explicit and they were explicit in their own unique ways, depending upon 
what they were facing in the classroom. So that's how all that I love evolved. It's not, but it's just another example of how difficult it is to get things done in your classrooms. I love that thinking too. And, and then will you talk a little bit about the teaching and balancing of roundstones and the Phi Delta cap? And I love that piece too. That's an article I have my students read every semester. And so teaching is like roundstones and visioning. And maybe can you talk about the evolution of visioning? <laughs> I always laugh about the roundstones thing because uh, roundstones was a knockoff article. Oh, really? I, well, yeah, I, I was, I didn't think it would have such an impact on, and yet it's probably, it's the thing people still talk to me about, you know, it, it's, they're still using the roundstones article for one thing or another, you know, and it's, that's wonderful, I'm glad to do, but, it, but, but yeah, it was, a, it was a knockoff in a sense that, uh, I wrote it after I got all the Whitworth. This is uh, just before I went to Greensboro, I guess. And, uh, uh, and trying to get at the idea that there, in order to be the kind of creative person that you have to be to be a good classroom teacher, you gotta know. You gotta know enough about yourself. And you gotta be able to be confident enough, to, or courageous enough to try different things at different times, and courageous enough to forgive yourself every time you fail. Because failure is part of class and teaching. That's another thing that makes it so difficult. I mean, there's never a time you can come out of a year of working with kids and say, I I, I was totally yeah. effective with all of them. No. you got to be able to accept that. Well, that's, that, that's a strength of character. And that was what I was trying to get at with the round souls that I was... I had a colleague that I was supposed to with here at Whitworth and uh, uh, he actually told me this story, which uh, which I think I mentioned at the beginning of that article that, you know, there's some, he was traveling someplace and he found some people who were balancing round stones as uh, some people could do it, some people couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And and he was a very, uh, uh, what's the word? He was very, uh, I don't know. Yeah, he, he was very spiritual. Okay? Okay. So he was trying to convince me that, uh, that there was uh, some sort of spiritual thing that, uh, allowed them to balance around stalls. And I just turned that around and said, no, I think it's that they know who they are and they know what they stand for. And they, you know, so I don't know. I, <laughs> it's, it's wonderful that it's such, such 
such a following, but. <laughs> so I think uh, people might kill me if I don't ask you this, but do you have a particular vision when you were in the, in the work, either as a classroom teacher or as a professor that you would want to share? If someone said to you, what's your vision? Yeah, my vision is, is pretty much captured in that. That idea that there is no one right answer. Uh, that uh, can approach teaching from the standpoint that there is an answer. Uh, that there are inserts, and that you have to be able to choose among them. And uh, and, uh, and that goes back, of course, to. The whole idea about the ecological nature of classrooms, that, that that's what makes it necessary to be able to choose. Uh, so, yeah, that was... I love that. That's, that's what the way I think of teaching is, the way I think about, uh, about teaching teachers. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to... You have to come at it from the standpoint that there are no right answers. Good. I love that. So let me ask you this. So what has surprised you the most about your work? That's kind of a tricky, a, a tough question, I think. But what surprised you the most? Um, it could be about your work or your career or I just wonder. I think. surprised me the most so if you look at it from a career-long kind of perspective and where I'm sitting right now uh, it's, it's, it's the uh, <laughs> it's almost like the impossibility of, of creating change in education. And education is such a huge endeavor. There are so many stakeholders. Uh, nobody can agree on anything that anybody else says. Uh, yeah. and, um, and so you have to look at change. Uh, as, um, as, as, as some the perspective, it is slow, it is slow, it is slow, and you're not going to be able to, uh, and because as a young professor, I'm sure that I, like lots of others, thought that, okay, you know, we, we, could, we could do some research and we could establish some stuff that's really going to make a difference. Well, I don't know how much difference I made. Yeah, I figured out that it's fruitless to think about making systemic differences. I don't think you can make a systemic difference. It's too complex. Too yeah. many. But you make differences. I made a difference with you. Yeah. I made a difference with this person. I made a difference with that kid over there. I mean, you know. Yeah. And the, the, the individually... We have a huge impact. Systemically, I'm not sure that we do. Well, I 
I think you've made the systemic impact. I mean, you, you know, we can argue this <laughs> for quite a while, but I mean, your work on explicit teaching, on adaptive teaching, and you know, your vision. Well, oh, yeah. you know, it, it, it has it has some impact, but you know me, I'm going to be your biggest it's fan. Not, it's, it's, it's not like you changed the world. You know, I mean, uh, your screen went pink. I mean, it, uh, there, there's a lot of education that is political in nature. And, um, uh, and, and you can't, it's, it's the most frustrating thing for me is the fact you can't get anybody to agree on anything in education. I mean, take, uh, you know, I was thinking the other day about the Common Core. Remember the Common Core? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it even exists anymore, but, uh, but when the Common Core came out, I thought I looked that over. I, you know, worked with that for a while. And, you know, this is pretty damn good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good. But, can you get anybody in education to agree that we could use that as a foundation? That is a, that is the answer. It's just a foundation. No, you can't do that. No. <laughs> and uh, and it's that, and it's all wrapped up in, in, in ideology, in my opinion. I mean, uh, it's like the the debate that's dominated my entire career is this business of whole language versus phonics, which is, it's just, it's a waste of time. Yeah. I mean, we spent however many 60 years or 70 years arguing about phonics and whole languages when, in, in fact, every classroom teacher out there knows damn well that as it comes down to it, I'm going to teach these kids letter sounds. <laughs> because if that's what it takes to get them to read, we're going to teach them to do that. But it, but because of the politics, what I perceive to be politics anyway, is that you know, we have managed as a field to make phonics into some sort of evil demon that is somehow bad and that's what I think happened with the Common Core because Common Core acknowledged that yes this is a letter an alphabetic language and yes we do have letter sounds and so we could teach these letter sounds to kids and it might help some of them to read but there are people who just refused to accept that as a reasonable foundation and, and that's frustrating because I think it holds, it holds us back. So, so here we are, 2023, we're still arguing now about the science of reading, right? Uh -huh. That's what, yeah, that was my next uh, question is, so given your career striving to transform literacy thinking, what is your current view or current advice 
to the field and to to listeners who are listening, faculty, teachers, policymakers, what would you, what's your current view or current advice? Oh, I have all sorts of advice. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're going to be a student, I mean, I think there are certain kinds of problems that are, are really difficult for literacy educators and and teacher educators and the the, um, the idea that we can't you know the whole phonics and language thing I just talked about is 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 you know as if we have to choose sides you know and so you know and if I had any influence at all I would say, uh, don't choose sides. <laughs> don't get embroiled in that, uh, because whole language is wonderful and phonics instruction is necessary for some kids, and so don't waste your time on that. The other, the other thing that uh, that really. I think is a major problem, especially now, is this whole idea of teacher education. I mean, what, how do we, how does it work that you have teacher education programs in which you try to teach teachers to do cutting edge kinds of things, and then you send them out to schools where what they have to do is follow a script, and that's my understanding, pretty much universal now. I mean, uh, I, I was talking to Jim often the other day. He was talking about the fact that they are telling teacher educators you cannot use the word guided reading now. Yeah, and balanced <laughs> is a bad word. Balanced reading. Yeah. Okay, so where is... I mean, it's like, okay, so... Yeah. Why does this schism exist? You cannot, you cannot really make any, I mean, one of the things that comes out of all the stuff that we've been talking about so far about complexity of classrooms and all that is that learning to be a good teacher takes a long time and it takes a collaborative effort between universities and schools. And now you can't find any collaboration between teachers and schools or between uh, universities and schools because they're operating on totally different ideas. I mean, the whole idea, I mean, that, that you're going to have to have a, uh, a program in which you follow religiously even to the point of reading a script is totally alien to what it is in trying to do a teacher act. So how do you make that work? See, that really, that really worries me. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it's, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's gotten worse, you know. I mean, to a certain extent, there's always uh, a tension between teacher education institutions and what's going on in the 
school districts, but my experience through most of my years was that, you know, you could do collaborative stuff, and that was what Michigan State stood for. Mm-hmm. It was all field-based stuff. Uh, not only the IRT, but in their teacher-aided uh, efforts, and we spent almost all our time in classrooms, and we would teach kids, uh, teach our teachers in the schools where they were working. Can't do that now. Yeah. The teachers are not given any freedom as to what it is that they can do. So that's a real problem. Yeah. And I have no advice about that. Yeah, yeah. I handle that. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't envy what you guys are wrestling with because I just don't see how how it works. You know, and, and it's partly because it's also partly because we have a simplistic nature about learning to be a teacher. You know that, you're, that there's only certain procedural kinds of things you have to learn, and you can be a classroom teacher. Which, you know, if I've learned anything else in all my years, is that. Learning to be a teacher takes a long time, and uh, and it requires uh, uh, a lot more than taking a course on reading methods and how to teach writing, and all that is you know it doesn't even touch what needs to be done, and yet that's what we do everywhere. And uh, uh, the only really successful teacher education that I've been involved in is when I was in classrooms with teachers helping them on the spot. Then I could see some things happening. I figured out all the methods courses I taught over all of the kids. Who knows? Yeah. I, I love, I love, oh yeah. No, I mean, I love, I love all the thinking, and um, I, I don't know. I mean, so I, I, I hear what you're saying about the debate and literacy right now and how it's it's so polarized, and it seems so reminiscent of, like, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, when that was those emerging conversations on the best way to teach reading, and it's it's sad that it's it's not moving forward when we know all this good good work and, you know, your work. And also, especially that we have lots of data that Mm -hmm. choosing a single method is not going to do the job. I mean, it goes way back to there was a study. I can't even tell you how many years ago. It was a long, long time ago called the first great study. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And, uh, and, you know, it was established way back then that the one method really is yeah. the best. And yet we keep arguing that over and over yeah. again. Well, I I love, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know. Tell us something hopeful. Well, 
you know me, I'm the eternal optimist. Like, let's. You have to remember, I mean, from my perspective, I, I mean, I mean, some negative, but. Uh, no, no, you don't, but I'm just. I, I, I love every single yeah. day I was, I was working. I love I had a day, Never had a day I didn't want to go to work. Yeah. Because it's such exciting work. Yeah. And, but it's also frustrating. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I think it's such a realist perspective. Yeah. yeah. And you, uh, and, you know, it's just that um, I, I would like to see, I mean, I started out way back. I was first a lab school teacher in Freonia, and James Collins' book on the education of American teachers came out. And his idea was that uh, uh, the people who should be teaching methods courses are teachers. And I don't think I've ever gotten much beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's so true. I mean, it's not just that teachers should teach teachers how to teach. It's that it's said it's it's uh, a, a long developmental process. If you start from the standpoint that we're going to get uh, teachers involved in this, which again is an old Michigan State idea. Yeah, like that. Back in the days when I was there, uh, that you got you, you got people involved in uh, in teachers involved in the whole process of educating teachers. And uh made a whole lot more sense. Yeah, I just I love I love hearing your ideas and it's it's so fun to think about uh it's so hopeful. You know, I love, you know, the root the rooted in classrooms and it's just I think it's inspiring. I think I think if we can return back there, I feel like we could kind of get better ahead of this current debate. You know, if we could go back to the classrooms and kind of go back to those foundational elements that you were sharing about. I feel like I feel like for policymakers, even and for faculty, that if we could kind of go back into classrooms and see a little bit more of what's actually happening, I think it would it would be transformative. Because I think that's what I feel like your work is for so many, and it's I do feel like it's timeless. But I think that you know, in the beginning, you said you're a classroom guy. Yeah, and Gary, you know, you know. Larger sense, you know, uh, it's not like nothing's happened in the last 70 years. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, when I started, you didn't teach comprehension. You, you, you asked questions, that was all you did. And look at what, look how, you know, what a significant change that has made. Yeah. You know, and the fact that. Uh, you know, that now comprehension, regardless of the extent to which teachers are doing the way, you know, everybody's focused on it now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a huge change. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much. Change. Yeah. And it's a, so it's evidence that progress is made. It's just that uh, there are certain things going on 
that once we've talked about that are sort of political in nature that seem to be creating schisms and when what is what is needed is everybody on board working together. Yeah. And, uh, and so that part, you know, that part gets uh, yeah. occasionally frustrating. Well, I love, I love this. So um, I feel like those are all of my questions. Are there other things you want to talk about? You know, I love, I love, I know I've kept you for so long already, so. That's all right. That's all right. It's fun. Yeah. Well, uh, anything else you want to talk about or? No, I think I'm All right. Thank you so much, Jerry. And the whole idea of, uh, of attempting to transform education is a great, I mean, that's a great theme. Uh, because that is what that is what we're all trying to do. I love that. I love that. Published that, we have been successful. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jerry. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>